We are in week two. Right, we are in week two of our series on Mark. Um, this is exciting. It's not something that we often do where we go through a book of the Bible, but we're starting this year off and we're trying that out and we'll see how it goes, see how your response is to that. So we're excited about that. Last week we started the series by just looking at kind of an overview. We looked at the book of Mark, we looked at the author, we looked at the audience, and we kind of looked at the big concept, which incorporated the first verse of the book of Mark. And so today, if you have the Bible app or your Bible with you, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. And so if you want to turn there or go there, that would be good, because that's where we will we will be headed. And what we learned last week is what mattered most to Mark was really contained in those first verse, the first verse of the book of Mark. And Mark's whole goal was to demonstrate that Jesus was the good news, that he was the Christ, that he was the anointed one, that he was Emmanuel, God with us. And so that first verse sets the tone for the whole book of Mark because that's what he intends to do in the book of Mark is to demonstrate that. And that kind of leads us directly into today's passage um, in verses 2 through 8 where it shows Jesus' arrival began just as it was prophesied. How were the people, how was the audience to know that this was the Jesus, that this was the Messiah? Well, to begin with, there would be one that prepares the way. There would be one that cries in the wilderness. And so that individual was John the Baptist. Now, I don't, how many of you have seen Family Feud? All right, and there was an old one, and now there's a new one. Um, I used to live in California. We, our family actually went to audition for it. They didn't pick us. I don't know why they didn't pick us, so maybe that's still with me. But I thought about bringing two of you up here today to play Family Feud. Um, that's always a little bit dangerous. But I thought about it, and so, you know, you family feud, you have the two people, and they hit the buzzer, and whoever hits the buzzer first, and some, you know, the board, the higher on the board, the better. Um, but I thought about playing that, because the question I would ask the two people that came up here is, and I'm asking all of you, is what's the first thought you have when you think of John the Baptist? What is it? Is it what he wore? Um, the, you know, this camel skin? Was it what he ate? Um, maybe it had to do with uh, the unfortunate death that he incurred. That might be something that popped up immediately. Maybe, you know, we just kind of spent some time this last series on um, Jesus and preparing for Jesus, and we learned that uh, John the Baptist was actually joyful in the womb, and the Spirit came upon him in the womb. So maybe that was something that may have popped into your mind this morning. We're going to get back to that question at the end of our message. Um, so 
we'll, we'll take another look at that. But for right now, we're going to take a little time to look at the prophecy concerning this voice in the wilderness. We're going to look at the messenger, and we're going to look at his message. So the first two verses of our passage this morning are Mark 1, or Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and it says, It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. So Mark here is actually pulling words from the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. He's remembering what Isaiah said, and he's pulling words from Isaiah and applying it to his situation that's taking place. So Isaiah, um, what he says in um, chapter 40, says, listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. So when Isaiah was writing these words, he was referring it to and talking to the individuals that were in the Babylonian captivity. And he was announcing to them that their life in bondage, their life where they were insecure, their life in this foreign territory was about to end. Their affliction was about to end. And a voice was now going to go forth like a trumpet blast of a herald or like an officer of a king who announced that they were going to move forward and take care of the way by which the king goes and, and put that road into good condition. Because at the time of Isaiah, the eastern princesses would want to go and become kings of other areas, and there were no roads to get there. So their individuals, individuals had to prepare the way. They had to remove hindrances that were in the way, and they had to provide supplies so that they could accomplish that task, whether it was to build bridges, to build causeways, to fill up land so they could get across. There wasn't any way to do that other than to go and actually prepare the way so that the prince could go through, the army could go through, and they could take over other territory. So this language was familiar. They understood the people that were um, in bondage, in captivity, um, understood this language. And so God was about to lead his people again to their own country, this time through this pathless wilderness from Babylon to Jerusalem, just as formerly when he led them from Egypt to the promised land. This wasn't the first time they were going through the wilderness. And the command of God had gone forth through Isaiah that they were to remove all of the hindrances. 
And he didn't want to repeat what had taken place with the people that were enslaved in Egypt and left Egypt to go to the promised land. Because what happened then? They were freed, but a trip that was supposed to take 11 days ended up taking 40 years because of the obstacles that were in the way. And some of those obstacles they created. Joshua 5 through 6 says, The Israelites had traveled in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were old enough to fight in the battle when they left Egypt had died. For they had disobeyed the Lord, and the Lord vowed he would not let them enter the land he had sworn to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. One of the most respected commentaries in the Old Testament, Kyle Ndelich, wrote this about referencing the book of Isaiah and those verses that we read about Isaiah. It says, in general, the meaning is that Israel's to take care that the God who is coming to deliver it shall find it in such an inward and outward state as befits his exaltation and his purpose. So Mark is applying these words that we find in Isaiah to verses 2 and 3, and it's meant that the people were to prepare the way. They were to prepare a reception for the Messiah. They were to remove all of the, their obstacles in their lives, to get their personal lives in order, in order for him to arrive. These people had waited 400 years. There had been no prophetic message for 400 years. Not the last prophetic message was Malachi, and God spoke through him and said this, Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you looked for so eagerly, is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's army. And now John the Baptist is there, and he's confirming this declaration, and he's declaring that there's going to be somebody that comes after him that is much greater than himself. So these individuals that were waiting for 400 years that were somewhat in their own bondage, somewhat restless, they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah, wondering when it would occur. So they automatically rushed out into the wilderness to see John the Baptist. They wanted to know if this was the king. And if it was the king, they wanted to know what they needed to do to make it happen. What they needed to do to prepare the way. And we're going to look at the answer to that in just a minute. But maybe we should just take a minute to take a little bit of a time out and do a little bit of reflection and back up and consider our response to this concept of clearing the road, preparing the road. You know, um, Jesus taught us how to pray and he said, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the same concept should be true as it applies to us. We should be seeking his kingdom. 
We should desire that his kingdom come and his will be done in our lives daily, right? And so if that's the case, if we should be preparing for him to come into our lives each day and his will be done in our lives, what are the things in the road that block that? What are some obstacles that maybe need to be removed? What are the mountains that we've created in our lives to stop him from coming into our lives each day? We need to reflect on that. You know, it's, we're no different. We're not an exception. Just as the Israelites were freed from Egypt but remained in the wilderness, the same can happen with us. And sometimes, although we have been freed by Jesus, we put ourselves in a wilderness. We set up obstacles like pride, greed, addiction, or we just choose to do the things of this world. We're consumed by the things of this world. And so this message, this cry to prepare the way was not only for the audience of John the Baptist, it was not only for the audience of Isaiah, it's for us today too, that we should be listening for that cry that we need to prepare the way for Jesus to reign in our lives each and every day. Well, next is the messenger. And John was a very unique messenger. Mark 1, 6. We went too far, I think, or not far enough. Mark 1, 6 says, His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. I think some people have this idea that John the Baptist was a little bit crazy. Maybe a little antisocial since he was out in the wilderness. Um, maybe he was just a little bit wild um, because he was wearing those clothes and was eating those weird stuff. And so he must have been a little wild. Um, but that's probably not the, that's probably not the case. Um, there's a couple of explanations as to why he wore what he wore. And the first explanation is the fact that it identified him as a prophet of God. In the Old Testament, those that wore that were prophets of God. We have an example of that in 2 Kings when we meet Elijah. And in 2 Kings 1.8, it tells us that he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. The same thing John the Baptist wore. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples that John the Baptist was Elijah who was prophesied. He makes that connection. The disciples later on in Matthew 17 remember that passage in Malachi and say, there's supposed to be Elijah that comes before the Messiah. So they were questioning Jesus about that. Where, where's Elijah? 
And Jesus said, you didn't recognize him. He came. And then they realized that he was referring to John the Baptist. The second explanation of why that clothing may have been worn by him was that it contrasted with how most people would have thought the announcement of royalty would have come. We would think that when royalty came, when the king of kings came, everybody would be dressed to the T. Everybody would be in their finest. Carpets would be rolled out. But that's not the case, and that was not the mission with John the Baptist. I find it interesting that Jesus even refers to this in Matthew 11. He says, Jesus began talking about him, John the Baptist, to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed, swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Third explanation of why he wore what he wore is that he was on a mission of repentance. Sackcloth is a similar garment that's used in the Old Testament that displays somebody that's mourning or repenting of sins. And as it relates to what he ate, Scholars really don't focus on what he ate because it really wasn't that unusual during that period of time. It was somewhat common that individuals would eat that, that were living out in the wilderness, etc. But what they focused on was that John the Baptist didn't take his food from anybody. He depended upon God for his substance. You know, um, John the Baptist's father was a priest, and many believe that John the Baptist himself was a priest, so he had the right to, in, to eat temple food. And yet he chose to deny himself of that. His life was a protest to the prosperity and lies of the Pharisees. They loved places of honor at feasts. And they loved wearing these robes with great tassels. The exact opposite of John. John was a humble person in appearance. And he was humble in his attitude. We learn in the book of John that his followers came up to him and said, we're a little concerned because... The number of people that are being baptized by Jesus is greater than the number of people being baptized by you. And John the Baptist said, I'm not the Messiah. He is to become greater and greater, and I am to become lesser and lesser. No matter what the situation, no matter who you are, it's difficult to be humble. And John the Baptist was humble. But it didn't mean that he wasn't bold. He was very bold. He didn't allow public opinion or other people to dictate what was right or wrong. He trusted, he stood on God's truth and called out sin. 
He called out sin to the highest government official in the land. Do you remember that? That's bold. We look at that in Mark. It says, For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, It is against the law for you to marry your brother's wife. Pretty bold. Top government official communicating that. Maybe it's time to take a little bit of another time out and do another reflection and ask ourselves this question. Does our lifestyle get in the way of being on mission with Jesus? Have we complicated our lives so much that we can't even be on mission with Jesus? John the Baptist simplified his life and ensured that he was on mission with Jesus. Are we guilty of becoming religious, just concentrating on acting a certain way, saying the right thing, dressing a certain way, playing the part, but our heart is far from it? Is our lives characterized by a humility but a boldness? Do we stand up for God's truth? Those are questions for us to reflect on. Well, that brings us to the message. In Mark 1, 4 through 5, it says this, This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and had turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. It says all of Judea went out. All of Jerusalem went out to hear and see John. The book of John in chapter 5 tells us that John the Baptist was like a burning and shining lamp that people were excited for a while to hear the message. Like I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of excitement generated when all of Judea heard that there was an individual like Elijah in the wilderness proclaiming there was going to be somebody that came after them. They wanted to check it out. They wanted to see if it was the real thing. They wanted a king to lead them. The book of Matthew even says that the Pharisees and Sadducees came out into the wilderness. They may have had a different reason to do so, but they still came out. John called them a brood of vipers. Um, But they still came out. And when they got there, they were confronted with a message of what they needed to do to be prepared for the way of the Lord. And that message was to be baptized, to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven and escape the wrath to come. Many of them, I'm sure, had, follow, had fallen into following traditions rather than the truth. They had started to live their lives in a self-directed way 
rather than a God-directed way. Repentance, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, repentance has this concept of going one way and turning around and going the other way. Stopping where you're going and turning to go the other way. In the New Testament, the concept has a little bit more about changing the mind. You used to think one way about something, but now you see it another way. You, have, you used to have one perspective on it, but now you have God's perspective on it. You begin to, you begin to trust in God's perspective instead of your own. And because you've changed your mind and your perspective, you turn the direction that you're going and you go the other way. And to show that they had repented, they were called to be baptized, to publicly demonstrate that they had turned to God for forgiveness, to identify that they were making their way straight for the coming of the king. And John continues his message in verses 7 through 8. He continues his focus on baptism, and he talks about the fact that there's a difference between his baptism and the baptism that Jesus will bring. And so we look at that in verses 7 through 8. It says, Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel all prophesied that by the day of the Lord, when the day of the Lord came, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out to all mankind. And everybody in Judea knew that prophecy. And Mark's message was consistent with the prophets that had proclaimed that. This pouring out of the Spirit on all mankind include, included giving them a new heart, replacing the heart of stone, being able to walk in the way of the Lord. And it was not just for young people, it was for old people, it was for all people. That was the message. It would be poured out upon everyone. And we have a perfect example of that in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for what the Father had promised. And then he recites what John stated. He said, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And we know what took place a few days after. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in many different languages. A fulfillment of that prophecy. However, that doesn't appear to be all. There's, it appears to be like another side to the coin with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we kind of get that clarification from a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 5 that also talks about John the Baptist. And it's not Matthew 5, it's Matthew 3. Uh, verse 11, where it says, He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He is ready to separate the shaft from the wheat with the winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the shaft with never-ending fire. 
we find the same emphasis of the Holy Spirit's work in John chapter 16, verse 8, where it says, And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. goes on in verse 13 to say that the Holy Spirit will guide you to all truth and disclose what is to come. So the Holy Spirit's work is to convict, to cleanse, to make holy, to separate, to set apart, to disclose the truth to you. There's not an individual in this room that's not here because of the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, your heart will remain hard. You will be far from the truth because it's the Holy Spirit who discloses the truth to you. John the Baptist's message prepared the way for the coming of the Lord. Hearts were turned. Hearts were made straight. Obstacles were torn down. You know, I asked at the beginning what your first thought of John the Baptist would be. And I'm going to guess that not many of you thought to yourself that he was the guy that prepared others to encounter Jesus. That was his mission. That's what John the Baptist was all about. Take all that other stuff away. It was all about him preparing others to encounter Jesus. Maybe that leads us to one last reflection this morning, one last question, and that is, how can God use you to prepare others to encounter Jesus? It wasn't just John the Baptist's job. As disciples of Jesus, we should also be helping others to encounter him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for John the Baptist and his ministry and his meaning and his purpose. And Father, we just uh, thank you for his life. We thank you for his example. Lord, let us reflect on our lives. Let us reflect about whether we've complicated our lives a little too much, um, what we're really living for, whether we're helping others to encounter you. We just thank you um, for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your Holy Spirit in our lives. We ask today that you would just fill us afresh, fill us anew, so that we may reflect you and others can see you in us. In Jesus' name, amen.